0: I hope it's true of you, I hope that you have enlisted into Christ's army, that you have submitted to His rule and His reign, and you're not living in rebellion against your Maker and against your God. That would be folly indeed, and yet so many are guilty. I invite you to turn in the Word of God tonight to Luke 20, the 20th chapter of Luke's Gospel as we continue In our study in this gospel, I was encouraged by so many of the hymns that were outside of my choice, uh, being about the love of God, the love of Christ. Because what we have before us tonight is a stark warning from Christ, as he approaches the offering up of himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He is now in Jerusalem, and it's just a matter, really, of hours before he becomes that offering. So, we're going to read from... Well, probably be good for us just to read from verse 1 again. So we'll go back. We looked at the opening eight verses last time, but there's obviously a connection here. And we'll read through verse 18. Luke 20, verse 1. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? But, and if we say of men, all the people will stone us. For they be persuaded that John was a prophet. they answered, that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come. And destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid! And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Amen. This is the very word of God. Receive it by faith. Believe it to the saving of your soul. And may God instruct our hearts here tonight from it. Let's pray. God, we ask for your blessing in your word. We pray that there would be something in store for us that again exceeds what we can ask or think. I pray for the salvation of a soul. I pray that it may please thee to do more than this. I pray for the feeding of the flock. I pray, O God, that it may please thee to do even more than this. I pray for a little reviving. May it please thee, O God, to give more than this. Cleanse our hearts and our hands Cause our minds to be fit and ready to receive the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. Extend thy kingdom, accomplish thy purposes through thy word. To that end, give us grace to be empty of all self-reliance. Give us faith that trusts in the promised Holy Ghost. That's sufficient to carry the word home with power. Hear and answer our prayers. For Christ's sake, we ask, "Amen." One of the most difficult things for us to do is to take a real look at ourselves after we have failed to have someone hold up a mirror and give us a proper look or perspective of what we have done. We find that hard they Truths that come from their lips. We know them to be true and yet we, we try to imagine that it's something other than what they are saying. That is what happens here. The Lord Jesus holds up a mirror before Israel in the presence of a multitude and an earshot of the religious leaders. He holds up a mirror for them to see exactly where they are and who they really are. We have seen here As we considered last time, that as the Lord Jesus taught and preached the gospel in verse 1, there came these priests, scribes, and elders. Many have concluded that this is a delegation of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court, and they have come specifically to try and tie the Lord Jesus in knots to get Him to say something that would condemn Him or in some way diminish His power if they can get him to openly declare that he is the Messiah, they can spin that in such a way before Pilate of a claim of sedition, that he is a threat to the peace of the empire and of the region and therefore needs to be dealt with with a heavy hand. On the flip side, if he denies it openly, then of course that will diminish how he is being perceived by the people and their expectation and anticipation that the Messiah has come would be utterly shattered if he comes out with the language that I am not he, just as John the Baptist had done. So, as we have considered the opening eight verses and that interaction of Christ with this delegation of the Sanhedrin, he then proceeds to speak what is called here a parable. Then began he to speak to the people this parable, but this is unlike any other parable. For the one thing, we can see its distinction because it's the last one we have recorded by the Lord Jesus. We don't find another parable spoken, certainly not through this gospel, and if we try to pair it all up, it's certainly around one of the last ones that he gave publicly. But in addition to that, it it looks different than many of the parables. Go for a moment to Mark's gospel, chapter 4. Mark 4. Do you see what I mean? And And I know I brought this out before, but Repetition is necessary since the audience changes and various people even may forget or not keep things in mind. So we go back again. Mark 4, we'll read from, well, a parable has been given, a parable of the sore, very significant. Then in verse 10, Mark 4, verse 10, And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. What does this mean? Help us understand. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. There's an aspect to the teaching of parables that was designed actually to hide truth, to keep people in the dark for sovereign purposes of God. The words are understandable. What He is saying isn't difficult, but the meaning isn't always being grasped. And so our Lord Jesus had this unique ministry, and I think this is important, and sometimes when you are being taught homiletics, or reading books on preaching. They talk about the importance of illustrations, and of course they have their place. But one of the arguments given is, well, look at our Lord Jesus, the great preacher, the prince of preachers, and he used all these parables, their illustrations, you should do the same. But none of us can speak in parables. In fact, it was a unique aspect of a prophecy concerning Messiah that he would speak in parables to set him apart from everyone else. Very few others. There are a few occasions you have parable-like teaching in the Old Testament. But generally, generally speaking, it was unique to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. and set Him apart entirely. But this one, if you go back to Luke 20, is different. There's no ambiguity here. There's no darkness. There's no mystery. There's no confusion. Everyone knows. You can see it from what is being said in verse 16 where we read the response immediately, God forbid. We'll get to that in just a moment. But where we didn't read in verse 19, you see the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They know exactly what he said. They know exactly what he meant. And so in some ways, this parable is distinct from others. It is clear as day. I've titled my message tonight simply, Jesus Holds Up a Mirror for Israel. Jesus holds up a mirror for Israel. That's what he does. Helps them to see through this more of an allegory, really, than a parable. And it's so plain who the characters are, who's featuring, and what is being said concerning them. And as we look at it, I trust it will come with sobriety to us because this is a sober passage. And it's sober, obviously, for those in that time who were hearing what the Lord Jesus is saying, but it's sober for us also if we stand in a place where we have had privileges as well. Because really, that's what it is. It's a people who have been privileged, remarkably privileged, and they've been given the oracles of God, and they've had all these spiritual benefits, and yet they have cast them aside. Worse than that, they have sought even to destroy the very Word of God incarnate. First of all then, they see their creation. By Christ holding up this mirror, they see their creation. Verse 9, he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. Now, it wasn't uncommon in those days that those with large estates would rent it out to tenant farmers and bring them in and then... They would benefit from having the land, but a portion of it would be expected to go back to the ultimate owner of the land. And it's not a stretch to imagine that at times when the landowner would come back looking for his portion, that that would result in dispute and argument, maybe even get violent at times as they would try even perhaps to maybe hide the harvest and say it wasn't as big as it really was, hiding a portion of it so they don't have to give the same commitment to them, all sorts of things that may have happened. Well, here the picture is one of a vineyard, and again you have this one who owns the land and it's rented out, as it were. These husbandmen are given permission to work the land for a benefit, but there is something that should be received from them. And what it is putting before, what it illustrates for everyone, and they knew it, you might not see it here, but I'll I'll help you understand how clearly they grasp the fact that he is dealing here with Israel. Go to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. We have here another kind of parable here concerning the nation of Israel. God is helping them understand why there's such severity coming upon them. So we'll take a few moments just to read the opening verses. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will let waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the man of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. Now keep your finger there and go to Mark 12. Go to Mark's gospel. And you need, I need you to be able to flip between these two. Because Luke's audience is more Gentile. And therefore, there are details here that are left out, not pertinent to his audience, but Mark gives them for us to understand. When, he, when we come to the parallel passage where the Lord Jesus is giving this parable, Mark 12 verse 1, well, what I want you to note is, and if you can see both passages, you'll see it for yourself, how verse 1 correlates so tightly with Isaiah 5 verse 2. So let's read Mark 12, verse 1. They began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged the place for the wine fat and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Back to Isaiah 5, 2. He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choices vine, and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. There's, there's this similar, this correlation of a vineyard, a tower being built. And when the Jews heard Jesus begin the parable in this language, immediately their mind is going to Isaiah 5. It sounds like he's about to launch into Isaiah 5. And that was intentional. There was no accident with that. Go back to Luke 20. Our Lord Jesus then, as he... Brings this parable is intentionally helping them to see. He's holding up a mirror, just like Isaiah. He's holding up a mirror so they can see what is going on, where they actually stand, and the corruption of their spirituality, especially among their leadership. But what it tells us is, when you look at Isaiah, and you look at the parable, and you see is that God Himself made them And this is what God is saying to Isaiah. He's saying, I gave you everything. I planted this vineyard. I brought this nation into existence. I blessed it with everything it could ask for. I protected it. I caused it to flourish. I put servants in the midst of it. It had nothing wanting. Nothing wanting. What more could I have done? And that's exactly how those in Christ's day were to see themselves. What more could have been done for them? So the parable then is showing this this blessed position in which they find themselves with this gracious one who has planted a vineyard and given it, handed it over to a privileged people who are able to harvest it and get the fruit of it and enjoy the benefits of it. This is Israel. Unto them was committed the oracles of God, to them were given the prophets. To them came God's word. To them were all the privileges that they received in their worship. They couldn't ask for more. There's nothing. Nothing else that existed in the world that they could say, it's unfair because they have that. Happy art thou, O Israel. They could not make any complaint against God. He had brought the nation into existence. And they should be thankful. Now before I move on, there's a sense in which that applies to us all. We're not Jews here. We're not in the same context. But at the same time, we can look and say that we are a privileged people. I mean, that's part of the benefit of me standing in this context. I'm not standing in downtown Greenville where I can't make assumptions. If you're here the vast majority of you, perhaps to a man, you have privileges. Privileges that are higher, more distinct than many in this very city, never mind beyond. What more could you ask for? Are the things you could ask for? No doubt. <laughs> we are so naturally discontent. There are things that our carnal hearts can want after. We have a way. We have... <laughs> You see it in Adam, don't you? Adam and Eve. I mean, they were given everything, everything in the garden. And still it wasn't enough. That's a picture of you, a picture of me. you can to have everything and it's not enough. So what do we do? Isaiah, in Isaiah 51 verse 13 says that we forget the Lord our Maker. We forget them. So we can even learn from this ourselves. So as Jesus holds up this mirror, they see their creation. Secondly, they see their examination. There's also an examination that's highlighted here from verse 10. At the season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of their vineyard, of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. just means they mistreated him. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. So the depiction here is that Israel, amidst all of its privileges, there's a time when there's expectation of fruit from all that they have been given. God expects fruit. And as the years progress through the nation, God sends servants to go and see and test that fruit, to bring a message about how God already perceives what they are doing. Go to Jeremiah seven. Just was one example. You, you could also what came to mind was uh, Second Chronicles thirty six, where you have a similar portion. But I think I've turned there on other occasions. I turn you tonight to Jeremiah seven, verse twenty five. Here's how it's summarized: Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day, so. He's talking centuries here. I have sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their father's. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and cut off from their mouth. That is the point they have been brought to by the time you get to Jeremiah. And again, as I say, you have this Stated also in Second Chronicles 36, same thing. God is sending prophets, they will not listen. It's been going on for centuries, they will not hearken. And this is illustrated then by the Lord Jesus in this parable where he sends servant after servant after servant, testing them, bringing to them God's Word, seeing where they stand, examining how they are. And every single prophet was another test. And every time they mistreated the prophet, they failed. Fruit was expected. God sends servants because there's a lack of fruit, a want of fruit. He sends servants to help them produce fruit, but they will not listen. Every servant that comes is actually, by his very arrival, the very presence of a prophet, in most cases, is a symbol of mercy. Just being there. That God is long suffering. He keeps sending. What patience over centuries to keep sending and sending as they decline, as they keep on testing. And he is looking for fruit, he's looking for fruit, he's looking for fruit, but over and over again there's none. He sends another. Why is he sending another? To call them to repentance that they might produce fruit. Why does he send another? To call them again from sin and to repentance so that they might show forth fruit. We've dealt with this already. If you flip back to Luke 13, you'll see how the Lord Jesus expresses the patience of God there in Luke 13. Verse... 6, he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit in this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Again, similar language here. And it's showing the patience and even the intercession of Christ where he is, he is calling upon for more patience to be shown, more time. God demands fruit. He doesn't give privileges and blessings for you to cast them aside. He doesn't give you His Word for it to be ignored. He doesn't put you under the means of grace for you to not benefit from it. He expects fruit. He expects fruit. Herein is my Father glorified, John 15... That you bear much fruit. What's was the chief end of man? To glorify God. How do we glorify God? We bear much fruit. I'm not going to get sidetracked into what sort of fruit, but you can see it in simple ways, just simple obedience. That's what he's looking for. It's not complex. It's not mystical. It's the well-known depiction that our Lord Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When you have the wise man, you have the foolish, and you you have them building their house, one's building his house on sand, the other's building his house on the rock, what's the difference? The wise man hears the word and does it. The foolish man hears the word and won't. So Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 1.10 that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And Jesus is showing in this mirror, you've had opportunity after opportunity, I've sent prophet after prophet, servant after servant, time after time, there's no fruit So, this reminds us of a couple of things, one of which I've already sort of dealt with here. That men by nature, first of all, reveal Adam's sin. Men by nature reveal Adam's sin. God can give him everything, and still, he looks for something more. The whole garden is yours, Adam, except for one tree. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. It's all yours. Enjoy. And he is duped to taking the one thing forbidden, him. This is in your heart. that it doesn't matter what God might lavish upon you. You're still, by nature, still naturally discontent and wanting something else and something more? Do you not see it in yourself? Do you not see it in your job at times? You can't even be thankful for what you have. You go through seasons where all you can see are the reasons why to move on, why to go for something else, why it's not as good as it could be. Have Have you not felt that? Have you not seen it in others? Do we not see it in God's work too? Do we not see it at how easily we can, I go through this, I do. You feel the weight, beloved. You feel the weight of, of wanting more. You want more people to be sitting in front of you. You want more spirituality in the people that do sit in front of you. You want God's spirit to be more evident in your, in, in your services, the real sense of, of God among us. You want, you want more to show signs of conversion and signs of growth. You want more. You feel it in your own soul and at times, and it's not wrong necessarily to pray and to ask for things that advance the kingdom and things that correlate to his will. It's not necessarily wrong. What's wrong is when it blinds you to what God's doing, what you already have. And I've been there. you have to straighten yourself out. Stop at math. Look at what God has done. Look at what he is doing. Look at what you have got. See it when you look at your spouse. Imagine what's missing. What's absent. What could be there. What might be there if it was someone else you were married to. This is Adam. It's wicked. Here's Israel. Blessed. So blessed. So blessed. Blessed. The most blessed nation on earth. It's not enough. Man by nature reveal Adam's sin. And man by nature reveal Cain's spirit. Cain's spirit. Cain murdered his brother out of wicked unbelief and envy. And Abel Abel was one of those servants. Abel was one that God sent and was there for Cain's benefit, his brother. God blessed him with a godly brother. Praise God for godly siblings. Those of you who have siblings, who know the Lord and talk to you about the Lord, don't be unthankful. Well, that murderous intent that was in Cain was found not just in what's about to take place concerning Christ. It marked, it marked the nation. That's the point when you go through these verses. They beat him, verse 10. Again, verse 11. They beat him also, verse 12. Sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. This is Cain's spirit. You may turn to it, I'll just quote it, but Stephen when he preaches just before his martyrdom, stands before the Sanhedrin, in Acts seven fifty-two. he says, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Tell me one that they embraced and loved. Just give me one prophet that they loved, that they embraced with open arms and praised God for. Give me one. Can't do it. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. (laughs) Talk about a preacher that gets to the point. And they couldn't bear it. The thing is, Stephen is really just echoing what Christ is declaring here in Luke 20. He didn't invent it. He's not saying it for the first time. He took from the language of his Lord. So we read this just before we move on, verses 10 through 12. You read this and how these servants are treated. And Christian, let me ask you, why is it then you're surprised that you're mistreated in the world? Why are you surprised? Why is it that you're shocked that people should be unbelieving? Why be amazed that people within the church at times can be guilty of awful sin? This is precisely what the servants of God faced down through the years. They were hated and rejected and sometimes killed for their faithfulness to God. So we shouldn't be surprised. Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Thirdly, They see their rejection. They see their creation, their examination, but then their rejection. As Christ holds up the mirror, then they see the rejection that is evident. Verse 13, Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved Son. Maybe they will reverence Him when they see Him. But when the husbandmen saw Him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir come. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. I remember showing them what was already in their hearts. And well, we know that, don't we? Verse 47 of the previous chapter. Luke nineteen forty-seven. He taught daily in the temple but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. And it goes way back, farther than that too. They rejected him. Outright rejected him. And they knew. They knew who he was. They're not doing this because they don't understand. They're responding this way because they understand and they don't like what they see. You can see it, even, in the way they respond. Just, just, well, before we get to that, just, just note a couple of things here. In what Jesus says, obviously he's pointing to himself. God sent his Son into the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What shall I do? I will send my beloved Son... This is amazing. You think of it just <laughs> So so God has sent preacher after preacher after preacher. And now he's going to send his son into the same den before the same wickedness to experience similar or worse treatment. What love. In doing this, Jesus first claimed to be God's son. You see the distinction between the servants? You're meant to see that. That's meant to be understood. All the rest were servants that he sent. Now he sends his son. This this one's different. And he is. He's different. He's not just your average prophet. He's not just another man. Though he be a man. This is the son of God made flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is different. So he is perhaps somewhat subtly, but not that subtle, clearly making this claim for himself, sonship. Also, the tenants knew. The tenants knew that he was God's son because he, in telling this, shows their response. This is the heir, verse 14. This is the heir. They're not denying it. They know it. This is the one to whom all things should be given. It all belongs to him. So in saying this, the Lord Jesus read and understood exactly what they grasped. But when you read, this is the air, I want you to see how they say this is the air rather than this is the sun. Because it would appear to me that as Christ fashions the language in that way, he is particularly highlighting the fact that They saw him as the one that stood between what they wanted. This is the heir. So they're not thinking about him simply as a son. They're seeing him as the heir of all things. And therefore, all of this belongs to him. And he stands between what it is we want. We want this for ourselves. So what did they do? Well, they murdered the son. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. That the inheritance may be ours. Ah, Joseph's brothers rise again. They don't like the favor. Let's get rid of him. The one who has his dreams and indicate that he's going to be over us not having any of it. So they fall into the same spirit. Christ exhibits them in this way. And of course in doing so, he's giving prophetic insight into what's about to take place. He said this already. He's told his disciples numerous times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Now this is very public here. He's, He's making it plain. Which... By implication also is an indication of the voluntary nature of what is about to take place. He's not running away from it. He's not trying to hide from it. He is voluntarily giving himself as a substitute for sinners. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to escape. He's not looking for a way out. He has embraced the call of his life. To lay down his life. The just for the unjust. To bring guilty sinners to God. Beloved, you're to embrace the same mentality of of suffering when the end of that suffering brings a glorious purpose into view. When you know that by your suffering, God is fulfilling His purpose. How do you know that? How do you know that through your suffering, God is fulfilling His purpose? Because you're not fighting against what He's doing in your life. In His providence and by His governing hand, He has brought you here, and you're not fighting it. You recognize that His hand is all over this. And as difficult as it is, it is His path for me. Before there's any crown, there's a cross. And there are a few saints who have ever gone through life Without experiencing it in that particular order, the cross comes first, then the crown. Christ embraces this, and he is fully accepting of the fact that this is what they're going to do to him. They're going to kill him. So, this is their rejection. Fourthly, they see their judgment. They see their judgment. Verse 15 again. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. This is their judgment. Just judgment pronounced. Great sin, great judgment. So the Lord is going to come, destroy them. The time has come, they will be destroyed. But he still loves the vineyard. It's his The vineyard depicts his kingdom. The work of God upon the earth. God's not finished with the world. He's not finished bringing fruit out of this world for his glory. And so you have these two aspects. Those who have rejected will be destroyed. And they were. They were destroyed. Christ later is going to Build upon this when he describes what is coming to Jerusalem in their destruction. God has done with them. They must be destroyed. That suffering that came upon the city is notable for its horror and its extent and its suffering. But this is what comes when you make an enemy of God. But he will give it to another. The vineyard will be given to others. God's not going to stop his work in the world. He's going to continue on. And Christ is going to be preached. And yes, praise God, some, some Jews will be gathered in. They will respond on the day of Pentecost, the first fruits, a harvest there. It will be notable... That after Christ at His ascension, there's a gathering in. Praise God. But it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Multitudes of Gentiles are going to be gathered in. Nation after nation will come under the influence of this King. The heir has come, and they will receive Him. They will embrace Him. They will believe in Him. They will serve Him, and they will bring forth fruit to His glory. That's you and me. Right here. 2,000 years later. If you're saved and the Spirit of God is in you, this is you. You're the foot of this, giving it to another, extending the kingdom to places where prior it had never been. Of course, the people are horrified. How could it be? God forbid! no way, not possible. They cannot entertain the possibility of it. But John had warned them. John had warned them. Matthew 3, Now also the axe is laid onto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John came. John came warning. Bring forth fruit now. It's now or never. Bring forth fruit. That was John's ministry. He was grabbing Israel by the lapel with the kind of prophetic influence that they had never witnessed. He grabbed them by the lapel and he said, Repent! Repent now! There's no more time. Oh, some of you go on as if you were going to live on for years without any judgment upon your life, as if you can ignore God today and get away with it. The thing is, the timing of judgment is not in your hands. And God is sovereign. And he has cut down people faster and quicker and more swifter than you. And you don't know when he's going to come. You've no idea. You've no idea. You have no control over what the dates will be on your headstone. He is in control. And the urgency, therefore, doesn't go away. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That's what went to other nations as well. It wasn't just that it was given over to other people for them to be careless with. He came with a thundering voice. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All must come and bow the knee before your king. Finally, they see textual evidence. In this mirror then, Christ gives them textual evidence to what he is saying. Verse 17, he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. What's going on here? He's quoting from Psalm 118. Which, which was part of what they were singing when he came into Jerusalem. They're singing the psalm. It's at the forefront of their mind. That psalm is at the forefront of their mind. Because it's Passover. They'll be singing that. And here they're seeing Christ coming in to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And this psalm's coming to mind. They're singing it. But there's another part of it. There's another part of it. that tells us, prophetically, messianically, that the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. The stone that was key in God's building. The stone that was crucial in God's kingdom. The stone upon which everything is built around You've rejected. And you're trying to build your own little kingdom. You're trying to build Israel. Your own little religious kingdom. You're trying to do it without the chief stone. The stone's there. The stone has come. Build upon it. Build around it. It gives shape. It gives structure. It gives safety, salvation. The whole purpose is built around this. And you've rejected it. And you're walking around all these months and years that he's been ministering and you're you keep stubbing your toe upon it. But you won't see it. You won't believe it. And so what will happen? Verse 18. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. There's a, the way this is phrased is in such a way as if there's two contrasting things going on, but it's the same. The point is, however you come into contact with this stone, you'll be destroyed. That's the bottom line. Whether you fall upon it or it falls upon you, you'll be destroyed. Christ is going to destroy all who will not believe. This is encouraging. In one sense, isn't it? Because what is this world trying to do but destroy Jesus Christ? Diminish the gospel kill the church, eradicate truth, twist the Bible, distort everything that is right and good. What are we living in? We're living in this present culture where there is this concerted effort to eradicate, almost in like a French Revolution type way, eradicate the remnants of Christianity from the land. Get rid of it all. And Jesus says, you can't succeed. You can't succeed. You come against me, you'll be destroyed. You try to crush me, you'll be crushed. If you don't bow before me, I will fall on you eventually. You will be destroyed. So believers then who have come to submit to the rule and reign of this error, who have said, yes, this is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can't fail in the mission. The mission cannot fail. Christ is saying you can do your worst. You can try, but you cannot end what has begun and what's taking place right here. Oh, you can take the son and you can kill him. That's what you're going to do, but it's not going to. It's not going to end. The stone God is going to build something upon it and around it. You can't change His purpose. The building will be built. So those of us who are God's people, who love the Lord, get to hide in the encouragement of this. The encouragement of the fact that Christ cannot be destroyed. Nothing can prevail against him. He will build his church. And there's no opposition that is greater than him. There is no plan that can surprise him. There is no effort that can crush him. There's no religion that can outwork him and outsave him. He will come triumphantly through every nation and gather his people one by one without any failure whatsoever. Our time is almost gone. I want us to meditate then on this thought. That we look in the mirror of God's word, all of us. That's that's what we do. I, I, I open the word to you, beloved. And we have here the very same thing that God gave to Israel. You have the very word of God. And it's a mirror. James tells us that. It's like a mirror. You read it, you see something about yourself. And one of the dangers is you go away and forget, forget what it says. And these Jews, they read the Bible, they memorized the Bible, they professed to know the Bible. But the entire time, they're blind to the central message and to the command that was calling them to resign the authority that they wanted This is man's problem. He wants authority over his own life. He wants to be the governor. He wants to be in control. He wants to say, it's my life. I want to do my thing. Don't dare come in and ask for allegiance. Don't dare ask of me any kind of sacrifice. I want to live it my way. And this this has not escaped the professing Christian church. If it was rife in Israel... Because of all the privileges that they had. Do you think, amidst all the privileges that we have here, that this cannot come here? That this spirit cannot descend upon you? Beloved, this is one of the things that we must be most frightened of. That we come to a point where we have this relationship with God that is on our terms. And we claim to be religious, we claim to be loyal, we profess to be devout. And yet the entire time, we are looking at Jesus Christ and we are molding him after our own will. And we try to make his message as comfortable as possible. It doesn't ask for sacrifice. You're not meant to lay down your life. You're not meant to go to the cross and deny yourself daily. And so you're not. What's that all about? No, 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 no. We make it comfortable. Make it comfortable. No, it's not comfortable. And part of the reason, perhaps, that we are not seeing the outpouring of the Spirit of God is because we will not become uncomfortable. So you have loved ones who are perishing. And nothing, nothing I say will move you to double your efforts and prayer for them. You're comfortable. You have people who are literally going to hell. Who are in your circle, family or friends. They're literally on, the, on their way to hell. And you... you you, you have not imbibed this sense of desperation, right? This sense of desperation that they are on the brink. And when they perish, that's it. And that sense of their lost condition and that eminence doesn't grip you. It is just, it is, you don't feel it. And there's going to come a day where you're looking at their funeral and you're wondering, where on earth are they and did I really, did I really pray for them? Did I really preach the gospel to them? Did I even try to reach out to them? Did I do what I could have done? Or did I was I so comfortable? God help me. This is real, beloved. Is hell real? Is it? Do we believe it? Are people literally on the way to eternal destruction from which they will never escape, ever. Will they suffer endlessly? That's what the Bible teaches. Are they going to be lost? Irrecoverably? And are you, perhaps the only, or whether you're alone or not, you're one of God's instruments right there in their lives? And yet, days pass and you never pray for them. Never mind saying, I'm going to set aside a particular time or multiple times in the week. I'm going to get before God 15 minutes in the morning or in the evening or some other time. Maybe even pair up with other people who are burdened with the same thing. I'm going to get before God and we are going to, we're, we're going to storm heaven until we see God answer. I will not let you go, Lord, until you answer. People are lost. And we are comfortable with it. This is what I say. When you assess your own heart, you start asking yourself, Am I, maybe I'm more like these Jewish people than I realize? I have distorted so that there, God has to force me into a cross. Is to bring some hard providence where I'm forced to bear difficulty. I won't actually get before him and bear this particular burden. Dear God, you have given me this child. They are not saved. I will not give up until I know they are soundly converted. You're going to hear from me every day. I'm going to set aside particular times where the only thing you're going to hear from me is their name and their need. It was that feeling that caused Paul to, in fastings, oft. It was just the burdens. It's the, he felt the burdens. It was eternity. And I, and I, honestly, I read this and I see all the privileges that we have right here. Right here in this church. We, we have been so privileged. What are we doing with it? Comfortable with the fact that people are on their way to hell. God forbid. And he's going to take he's going to take his working and his spirit and his privileges and he's going to give it to another. And leave us to our religion. But as without any sense of the presence of God. May the Lord have mercy on us. Let's bow together in prayer. Beloved, I say to you, I get up here sometimes and I feel the slothfulness of my own soul. I feel it, I do. And we, really what comes out is a, is a product of our own times of prayer where we are Where I am, let me just be blunt with you, where I am wrestling over, dear God, where am I? Am I comfortable with the fact that souls are perishing? Am I comfortable in my walk with Christ? Dear God, please, please do not let me become like one of those Jews. I'm totally blind to my own unbelief. hope we feel it too. We need to. We need to feel it in this place. God help us. Please spare us from traversing this path of ingratitude, of rejecting what you've given to us, of distorting and making as easy as possible the Christian life. We have such a short time here. Our life is so brief. God teach us to pray make us interceders to call upon your name trusting that you will do impossible things in our day some here have lost loved ones that seem beyond all hope but like Abraham we are to hope against hope and stagger not at the promises of God through unbelief but be strong in faith giving glory to God God give us evidence of your working right here may we see it Hear and answer a prayer. Be with us in all of our conversation before we part this place and as we enter into this world. Empower your church by your Spirit. Oh, give us more of yourself, Lord. Fill our hearts and then fill them even more. Expand the capacity of our own souls so that we might know more of God living and abiding in our lives. Come, bless His Spirit, fill us. Make us instruments in the hand of Almighty God. We pray all this. Dear God, we pray all this. So longing that you might work. Oh, that we would see a revival. Hear us, Lord. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.